This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Okay, I hope this works. Good afternoon, everyone. I was muted in a second, um, but now I hope you can hear me. Um, my name is Marlene Navarramos, and I'm a member of Critical Resistance, and I have the honor of being your host this afternoon for this amazing session titled Straight Out of Confinement, Defund Police, Free Them All, and the Fight for Abolition. This is the third session of a series of five political conversations hosted uh, by the Abolition Now Network. Abolition Now brings together amazing organizations who are fighting the good fight. Co-conspirators include the Red Nation, BYP 100, Survived and Punished, All of Us or None, Black Visions Collective, Reclaim the Block, Song, Drum, and our very own Critical Resistance. Our panel is also bringing together amazing and powerful organizers. Starting us off is Mr. William Palmer, who's also known as Tarek, and he's a member and organizer with All of Us or None. He recently came home after spending 31 years of a life sentence in prison. Over the last year, he's been working to stop the, the adultification of youth in the system and bringing attention and honoring the lives of people killed by police. Tarek is the host of a new podcast, and he's also a spoken word artist, and he feels in, and if he feels inspired, I'm going to ask him to help us close this conversation with his art and performance and vision. Miss Kelly Savage Rodriguez is also another wonderful and powerful and courageous organizer. She works with Survived and Punished, and today she is a free woman. After spending 23 years imprisoned under an LWAP sentence, life without possibility of parole, she's joining us here. So through the phenomenal efforts of Survived and Punished, um, she was able to receive clemency in 2018, I'm sorry, uh, be uh, received parole in 2018, and, be, and, and Governor Jerry Brown commuted her life sentence in 2017. Kelly will share with us SNP's work to fight for survivors who've, been ex who've experienced gender violence and have also been criminalized by state agencies. And last but not least, Jonathan is another beautiful human being and longtime political organizer and member of, of BYP 100. Jonathan helped organize mobilizations and hunger strikes to bring attention to the killing of Mike Brown. And most recently, they have been fighting um, a good fight in Washington, D.C. to stop jail expansion. And they're part of a group of people who are currently forming the No New Jails National Network, which will bring groups and campaigns across the country who are fighting for the freedom of people in jails and stopping jail expansion. And my name, once again, is Marlene Navarramos. I'm a member of Critical Resistance, and I am calling from the Napehoking territory, otherwise known as New York City. So this presentation brings together a panel of experts who will be connecting the dots between imprisonment and jail expansion to the current moment to defund police. They will share a brief, they will each share brief comments in the beginning, um, and then we will engage in a 
conversational roundtable discussion on how all of our demands to defund police and free them all are connected into a larger movement towards abolition. We know that in the past six months, we have seen the largest protests and street demonstrations in the country, ostensibly since the 1960s. The defund police moment and the movement that we're seeing right now has captivated the imagination of the mainstream. Both progressive and liberal politicians and company officials and foundations have taken up the call to defund police. And it is clear from these conversations, both online as well as in person, that we do not all agree. Um, but whether, but while there are multiple interpretations of what defund police means, abolitionists understand that the push to defund police needs to be rooted in an abolitionist politic against the entirety of the prison industrial complex. It needs to be rooted in PIC abolition. Abolitionists know, for example, that the uh, that we run the risk that that the gains of defunding police can be very much rerouted to expanding cages and jails and electronic monitoring and surveillance, surveillance technologies if it is not rooted in PIC abolition. These were, of course, the kinds of reform trends and expansion that we saw right before this moment. And we know that there will be gains because we are abolitionists and abolitionists are often successful. We often win. So with that framing, I want to ask Tarek if he can take it away and talk about the work that you're doing, um, share with us a little bit more of what all of us and none are doing and how you see the call to defund police in order to, uh, the call to connect defund police to uh, the abolishment of imprisonment. Thanks, Marlene. And uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Uh, two years ago, I was on my bunk in Solano State Prison where I served 18 of my 31 years, uh, wondering exactly how I was going to make 31 years count for something. It couldn't just be wasting away on a bunk and my youth, my life uh, and all. So it's an honor to be here. This is my life purpose. And, uh, and so I've had plenty of time to think about this and I've had plenty of experience with police, prisons and parole, uh, the prison industrial complex. I've written many poems, which I've forgotten, but I might say something at the end. But um, uh, so even when I heard defund the police, it was shocking to me because I'm like, what a world without police? But just imagine there used to be a world without police. Like in the United States of America, at one time, we didn't have police. Police was created uh, after slavery ended to manage this huge population of freed Africans. I don't like to call anyone black or white because if we look at the legal definition of these terms, white means free and black means slave. And it doesn't have to do anything with your complexion or where you come from. And so therefore I use terminologies that are more humanistic like African, European, Asian and so forth. So please, if that offends anyone, I apologize. But that's how I, 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 I decided to, to create a humanization of, of human beings and people. But the police were initially uh, 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 created from a racist group of people who wanted to see white people succeed and black people fail. So we have to abolish the police because if it's founded on that premise, first and foremost, 
then where can we reform that? How can we reform a racist system when it is designed to be racist? We have to deconstruct that and reconstruct something that is healing. So having that known, Myself coming straight out of confinement, I had to battle with just the thought of not what 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 would it look like not having a police system. So let's just say that even in the police department, those who were whistleblowers got pay raises to be, you know, the police chief or supervisors. Unfortunately, when you look at all the whistleblowers within the police department, they have all been fired. One was chased into the San Bernardino Mountains and burned to death. This is how they react when those inside of their own organization want to make systemic changes and and tell on the so-called bad apples. Here at All of Us Are None, we don't believe there's just a few bad apples. And even if there was one, the whole cart has become somewhat rotten. So let's imagine that if you decide in your community you want to call police, then call 911 and they can come. But what if you decide that you wanted to call 411 or 311 or just... Uh, an assistance that doesn't require guns and bullets. Assistance because, like me, my child doesn't want to go to school. Uh, uh, my neighbor is throwing trash in my yard. Or whatever type of community disputes that happen on a regular basis that doesn't require police. This is what we really mean by defunding the police. Taking police out of situations in our communities that doesn't require that type of uh reaction. And too often in certain communities, it has become uh, seriously injured or death by this type of reaction. And we want to defund that. We want to defund those type of uh, situations. And when we see that police are on the side of district attorneys and courtrooms that want to arrest people, not to solve issues, then they are filling up our uh, our prison systems. They are creating a revolving door and a pipeline. Once a child comes into contact with the police, the valve that opens that pipeline from school to college is turned off, and the valve that opens up the prison uh, from 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 school to prison is open. They don't care about refunding back into these things. As a matter of fact, when I got to prison, I went in at 17. And by the time I got to the adult part of the prison, I was about 19 and 20. And they had disbanded college for those who wanted to seek a higher education. And education is the key to freedom. So what we're really saying when we talk about defunding the police is that next uh, nexus into creating a large prison system. And many people who go into the prison system, especially those with a life to, uh, with a life sentence, they know that they have to go inside and fix what, what, what went wrong. And when they come out, they are more ready than anyone to say what is the problem. However, they come into the parole system. And even though parole is not supposed to be punishment, the type of conditions they laid on parolees make it so challenging that parole agents are now getting paid to send people back to prison than to re, uh, to, 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 to allow them to reenter back into society as seamless as possible. So there was a time when parole agents didn't have a badge or carry a gun. They had social degrees, uh, psychology degrees, degrees to where they are able to be social workers uh, to help people reenter back into society. Now, because they have been able to lobby as they do, they carry guns and badges and they are more about policing and returning uh, our citizens, our returning citizens back to prison. I know this firsthand. 
I've had an agent that returned me back to jail three to four times, as opposed to an agent that said, hey, I'm willing to work with you because I know you're a good guy. So do what you have to do. Just don't make me come get you. I said, I can do that. Right. So I've seen both both sides. But what if we had community uh, caretakers who when the person comes out of prison, they are embraced by the community, is giving jobs. Matter of fact, are given a life plan, sat down and said, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And here's how we can help you. And here are the resources that when we defunded the police, they they transferred over here and we're able to help you reenter society. And it is a known fact. Even when a parolee uh, is engaged in political matters, it is 0.04% recidivism rate. This is what we're saying. Instead of sending them into prisons, into jails, and having them to uh, continue their behavior that they were doing outside, if we engage them in civil activities, if we engage them in historical uh, facts to know how they got there and what this is constructed, if we teach them who they were not known before or what they did not know before, the likelihood of them going back to committing crime is almost non-existent, 0.04%. Now, if you think that you would rather spend dollars on adding hundreds of thousands of police officers than educating a prisoner and be more successful, then either you're not reading the facts or you are blind to what the politicians are selling you. And they always are selling you a Band-Aid fix and not a solution of healing the wound and stitching up that scar and getting on with life. And that's what we would like to present today. When we're talking about defunding the police or deconstructing the prison industrial complex, we are talking about creating a new system from a new way of thinking. And this is the age of the slave. Those who have gone inside, done the work, and know better than anybody how to fix this broken system. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Tarek and Kelly, do you want to share some thoughts, please? Yes, definitely. Can you hear me? Just making sure. Um, I'm Kelly Savage Rodriguez. I want to thank everybody for coming today. And um, I want to thank everybody for coming today. And I want to give And I want to give everybody an opportunity um, to just take a deep breath and think about some of the things that were said. Um, I want to talk a little bit about survivors that are incarcerated, but I also want to just backtrack just a tiny bit onto what our last presenter talked about. A perfect example of that is um, here in San Francisco, we had a supervisor who did take the time to conversate with us, gave us his number, gave us opportunity to engage with him if we did have a situation or needed uh, assistance in whatever, you know, even if it was like assistance to college, assistance to a computer class, he was removed because they said he was too much like a social worker and not enough like a supervisor who was going to punish. And so now we're in a once again, back to everything's policing. And we were told we couldn't even leave our house unless we could prove it was for work with documentation. Um, and, you know, not even to, to do the, you know, just basic exercise, whatever. If you were going to the store here in San Francisco and you were a proly, your suggestion was you better have bags with you. 
And so it just goes to continue that cycle uh, of you're still incarcerated. Um, so I just wanted to kind of reiterate that that's just one tiny example. So many people go through it um, or denied basic things, you know, to go to a funeral for a loved one. I get COVID, it, you know, is occurring, but uh, services aren't happening because loved ones can't connect that are survivors or that are parolees, um, you know, in whatever, surviving the system, whatever it may look like. Um, they, they can't even attend loved one services right now. And that's a shame about the system. We have done our time, but it's just my soapbox. I can't help it. Um, so talking about a survivor, when we look at what happens with the police now, they don't consider what a, uh, what someone is going through. They're not thinking about the process that um, someone is is enduring that causes an arrest. They're arresting them right along with the person because why? We need more numbers. It's about incarcerating as many people as possible, not looking at that survivor and how we can support that survivor. In fact, they're instead using that as a weapon to get their needs met. You know, to, to get that conviction, they're threatening, you know, they're, they're isolating that person even more than they were already isolated. And so we have a system now that not only is incarcerating all these uh, survivors, men, women, gender nonconforming, doesn't matter who they are. Um, but after they incarcerate them and they've done their time, then they're sending them to the ICE detention centers to go through it all over again. You know, you have individuals who are not only having a, a opportunity to, to get out of prison because they fought hard, lifers that have done all the work, but now they're saying, because your loved one, you know, when you were an infant, lived in a different country, you no longer matter and you're now going to the detention center. Even though they're completely aware that there are so many cases of COVID in the detention centers right now, that does not seem to matter to them. Um, they're now even transferring them out of state because that is their only option because there's so many COVID cases in the detention centers in California that they're now transferring them to other states. And so, of course, we know then they're paying even more to transfer them to another state um, and isolating them even more because now they're even farther from loved ones if their loved ones are here in California. Um, and then, of course, once again, they're at risk of COVID in the new place and, you know, airports and all the other factors that happen. So now the ones that are in other states are also in quarantine in their states because of so much COVID, um, unfortunately. And we know that that's going to be a risk everywhere. But if you have someone who is not a risk to society, who ha should have all the same opportunities as somebody else, you're still being victimized. And so one of the individuals we tried really hard, we had, um, you know, senators and assembly uh, individuals that are were willing to step up and write letters to the governor asking them not to deport the individual. And it just didn't matter. Um, and so it really meant a lot to know that we had people that were willing to fight. And that's what's happening right now is people are fighting for the rights of people that are being sent to the detention center at a rapid rate. 
it's not getting better. Unfortunately, it's getting so much worse. And as we support these survivors, whether they're going through the beginning stages of um, arrest or if they're at the end of their time, they're fighting for board or deportation, um, we support each of these individuals as they go through the process in any way that we can, um, whether it's with rallies and car car caravans because of COVID, but um, rallies, um, petitions, um, emotional support. Most survivors, um, especially for women, are sent far away from their families because there's not as many prisons for women across the country. So, um, so they're sent to long distances and their loved ones are, of course, taking care of their children or you know, their elderly parents are struggling to be able to come visit or, you know, have the funds to be able to have a conversation because, you know, everything is so expensive and most survivors are, are just struggling to be able to maintain that support. And so as Survived and Punished, we're blessed to be able to do that. Thank you so much, Kelly, for sharing that. And one of the things that uh, your converse, your contribution made me think of was thinking about sanctuary cities and and policing, right? And without uh, you know every time any point of contact with a police officer can lead to a deportation uh, for people who are at risk of deportation under U.S. law or who would be considered deportable under U.S. law, and and it made me think of the conversations you were having earlier around sanctuary cities and really thinking about how this defund moment uh, calls for us to acknowledge that there's no such thing as a sanctuary city with with the presence of police or with the presence of, of agencies that can cage people and, and uh, jumpstart the process of, of immigration, imprisonment and deportation. Uh, and with that, I'll I'll pass it over to Jonathan for uh, comments as well. Yeah, um, and just to start off, I'd say uh, personally, there's no such thing as sanctuary with prisons or police, period. Um, my name is Jonathan. I use they them pronouns uh, currently on unceded Piscataway land. Um, and so much has already been added to the conversation. Um, but like, I think the perspective that really like um, has held true and the things that we've already been in conversation about is that the fact that when we are thinking about abolition, um, what we're actually thinking about is not just a tearing down, but a, a simultaneous building up. That it requires a lot of deep, deep work uh, to hold on to hope. Um, Marion Cobbins says hope is a discipline, right? To hold on to that hope and imagine and then do the building blocks of making a new world a reality as we're living in an extremely messed up world in this moment. And so I think even pulling on the strings that uh, Kelly and Tarek have already outlined, um, a lot of the pieces that we're thinking about are all the different connection points that we are seeing around police um, and interactions in our community. Um, intracommunal violence, um, patriarchal violence, and then also just understanding the many, many devastating ways that someone can end up in carceral systems um, for reasons they really shouldn't be. And I think one of the things that stands out, and it's also part of my story, and I think we'll tease out a little bit more when we get to questions, is a, pat, is a part that if someone is in, in, enduring a mental health episode, uh, that is not a time for a police. That's a time for a trained professional who can be there to actually provide mental health services, not someone with a badge and a gun. 
um, and really thinking about the ways, not just thinking about mental health, but thinking about uh, instances of domestic violence, when we're thinking about um, uh, undocumented folks, all the different ways where police are showing up um, and, and, and instances and in situations where they should not be um, at all period, point blank. Um, and so when we think about abolition and specifically um, the abolition of the prison industrial complex, a lot of the work that we do um, here in the DMV, um, also in the East Coast, but I know all across uh, the so-called United States, is really working to address the fact that we, as we are working to divest from carceral systems, uh, punitive systems, including the punitive systems uh, we have in our own minds and the ways we treat each other, and divesting from police, we also have to invest in community resources uh, that are not just something that a mayor or some arbitrary elected official uh, can have a pot of money to hand out to people, but actually the community is driving and leading these resources um, uh, and these uh, the, this investment to make sure that people are having a brighter tomorrow. So that the fact that um, I'm doing a pause, I think we're having a little something with our interpreters. Are we good? Okay, awesome. Yes, I'm sorry if I'm speaking fast as well. But um, but what we're thinking about is that investment in community, that the fact that we don't need more police, we need clean water. We don't need more police, we need people to have housing. We don't need more police, we need people to be able to eat um, and take care of their families. Um, and these are the things that are, are, are the brass tacks. And so what I really appreciated about this defund moment um, and the work that um, is happening um, across the so-called United States and across the globe is the fact that people are really understanding uh, this work, especially from our, our folks who are currently incarcerated as far as, and formerly incarcerated, right? Um, that the fact that people have been saying this for a long time, that the system um, is working as it's intended and the way it's intended is to create havoc, chaos, and destruction. That's the only purpose that police and prisons serve. And so what we have to look to is this radical imagination of building toward a new world um, that works for everyone and where people can actually get that healing, can get their needs met and take care of those things. And so um, there's a lot of pieces that I'm really uh, uh, excited to get into, especially the piece about no new jails, um, uh, really thinking about the fact that this defund police moment. Um, has created an opportunity for us to really dig deeper into this conversation about stopping jail expansion and then closing down prisons altogether. Um, so a part of that, this movement is the fact that um, some of us have been in this work for some time now and have been talking about abolition, have been talking about defund police. And I think what's been really special about this moment that's been created around defunding the police is that I have family members who in January, I, I couldn't pull teeth to get them to talk about defunding the police. But now it's very much a part of like normal, casual conversations. People saying that, yeah, I am saying that actually, yeah, we shouldn't be worrying about adding more police to our budget. We should actually be making sure that people have the necessary uh, resources to take care during this global pandemic. And really like having some of those really needed conversations. So really thinking of the fact that um, what this opportunity is offering us is for folks who have been in this work for a while, uh, the opportunity to continue to dig deeper and continue to fight. Um, and it also for folks who may not have been in this fight um, with us up to this point, it also opens up an opportunity to like really allow people to reflect and think about the ways in which not just like the physical police um, are disrupting and damaging and destroying our communities, but also the police that we hold in our head and the ways in which that we treat each other in punitive and carceral ways, really working to dismantle that in this moment as we are working towards an abolitionist future. 
Thank you so much, Jonathan. And at some point in the conversation, I do want you to talk about your work in Washington, D.C., the No New Jails uh, D.C. campaign, um, how it started, what you guys been up to, and, and if there's time to also maybe even talk a little bit about the No New Jails National Network, which is an emerging uh, network that's bringing together campaigns across the country. And, and as one of the things that you were alluding to, jail expansion is, and electronic monitoring and surveillance technologies is the mode of expansion of uh, the PIC at this moment. And as abolitionists, we sort of have to anticipate these, these trends and these changes and get ahead of them. Um, so I really appreciate your contribution. And if there's time to talk about that, and maybe there's time with this conversation, with this next question, but I wanted to, to hear more about all of you and what, how you see um, the ways in which we can connect uh, the defund police um, movement specifically to the fight against imprisonment, right? How do we do this better? What kinds of organizing uh, can strengthen both fights in order to win um, and win big? And, and we can start with anybody. Jonathan, maybe you want to start, <laughs> not to put you on the spot. <laughs> oh, no, I'm fine going on the spot. I think I did see Tarek's hand, though. Um, was that a hand, Tarek? I don't, I don't call you out now. Yeah, no, no. I, I, you can go first. I went first last time. Yeah. Um, so I, I think one of the things that we uh, have been doing, not I think, one of the things that we've been doing in D.C. is that for the past uh, year and a half, uh, two years, um, have been fighting the uh, proposed new jail uh, in D.C. Uh, currently uh, in the D.C. jail, uh, approximately 90 or so percent uh, per recent reports um, uh, folks are incarcerated are black, and that's a, a result of the policing tactics um, and the over-policing of black communities um, in D.C. Um, but then also we know there's a, a majority percentage of folks who are currently incarcerated in the D.C. jail who are also suffering from mental health um, uh, uh, issues. And so understanding the fact that um, there's a targeted effort being made um, to currently uh, around the tactics police are using to uh, uh, target communities and, and imprison them. But also we know that our mayor uh, is working and has been working again for the past year and a half, two years around this proposed new jail, uh, which would be approximately $500 million um, and has been uh, an, a very concerted, uh, concerted effort uh, from the mayor to make that investment in this jail. But we don't even have the people currently to fill up that jail. So what would end up being a, a sequencing of if there is this new jail and it goes forward is the fact that then there will be a full court press to not only fill the jail, but to continue criminalizing people. And we know that these are um, people um, who tend to be black and brown, uh, people who are unhoused. We know that this includes sex workers. We know that these includes folks um, from across the spectrum. And um, that's what we've been fighting uh, against in DC. And a part of that work has also been joining in this large effort with the No New Jails national piece to really think about the ways in which, as we're seeing this fight where we don't need a new jail and we need to shut down the jail that we have now uh, and really work towards decarceration, we're seeing this instance of uh, neoliberal elected officials, uh, folks who are really in, uh, interested in privatization 
uh, in capital and not people in human lives are the ones who are having these behind closed doors deals and conversations that are having real life impacts and people who are being stopped and frisked in D.C., people who are being harassed by the police at every turn, um, and then which is leading to further criminalization and further incarceration. And so what we understand is that if we can stop this new jail expansion, um, that is a key piece of the fight. Um, working towards abolition, we know on the road there's a number of pieces, but if we could stop this 500, this proposed uh, about $500 million and actually get that to go to communities, not a jail that we don't need and don't have the people to fill up and we don't need to be adding people to fill up um, is the fact that uh, it, it's key in this fight. And we know that there's been a number of wins uh, across uh, the so-called United States and we're continuing to be in that fight with uh, campaigns like those, like No New Jail San Francisco, um, who had a major win around uh, their No New Jails campaign, uh, which we're in that fight at a national level uh, to really raise the alarm on, on that fight. <laughs> that's, that's awesome, uh, Jonathan. Uh, congratulations. Uh, so I work for All of Us Anon. Uh, it's an organization that is founded by formerly incarcerated uh, individuals who hire formerly incarcerated individuals uh, at, at one point, the only ones who weren't incar formerly incarcerated were the attorneys. And uh, I'm sure there's some attorneys out there that should have been incarcerated and can come out, but that's just a joke. <laughs> but uh, what we do is uh, we put ma we, we send manuals into prison. Uh, prisoners write to us uh, every day volumes of letters. Matter of fact, we need volunteers on 4400 Market Street, the big red door in the black uh, building to come in and help us answer some of these letters. And I know other organizations who have this same um, uh, problem of being able to handle the volume of people asking for help uh, from inside. So that's just a clue of, of, of what's taking place. And we have to imagine, we know uh, the historical record, how many people were on death row and innocent. We know the historical record of how many people who have served 20, 30, and 40 years and later DNA proved that they were innocent. But there are some people like Larry Green who DNA is not available to prove his innocence, and he's been in prison since 1974. And at some point, when a person is writing uh, for help and he's saying, I have maintained my innocence for over 40 years, there should be some type of mechanism in place where this person should be able to be heard and, and show their evidence because we know there are corrupt district attorneys. We know there are corrupt uh, public defenders. We know there are corrupt uh, investigators. And when I use the word corrupt, uh, maybe it's, it's, it's on the line where their job is to put people into prison. That's how they get paid. And if they don't do it, then they don't have a job. And that is a form of corruption, even if you have good, well-meaning uh, people in these positions trying to do their job, quote unquote. So all of us are none. We are engaged in listening to the voices inside and giving them the self-advocacy to prove that they deserve to be on this side of the wall. And many are. We don't have a a, a prison population in California alone. In, in California, uh, a couple of years ago, we had triple rack bunks in gyms that were meant for basketball. We had our prison system that was over uh, 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 200 times the capacity it was it, it, a, a three judge federal uh, 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 three judge panel federal uh, 
panel had to come in and, and, and condemn our prison system as inhumane, as, as cruel and unusual punishment. And so if we have governors, if we have uh, secretary of corrections, if we have wardens of 36 plus prisons allowing this to happen, at some point we have to say something is wrong with our system. And there has to be mechanisms in place. So at all of us or none, we are about pushing Proposition 17, where we give 50,000 people the right to be able to vote so they can determine who's the governor, who's the secretary of defense. When I got out on March 11th of 2019, the next day I went to San Francisco Library and met with the police chief of San Francisco and a youth organization to bridge the gap of communication. And by the time we left out of that auditorium, the police knew their history on how they got started and was uh, 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 they were like taken aback. And the youth understood that being able to articulate yourself in a way to be able to uh, advocate for yourself and say the things that you need to say will go a long ways in getting the help that's needed. So we have this communication gap and we have all of these communities within the United States. We have these fringe right groups and these fringe left groups and these friends up and down and over here, but we never sit with each other and talk and have a conversation and understand that we all can have what we want. We don't all have to be in the same pot, in the same community. We can all get what we want when we sit down and have a conversation and see the thread of what we have in common and then the other things that we, we need as individuals. So at All of Us or None, we are really about um, self-advocacy, uh, lending voice, uh, amplifying the voices of those that are incarcerated. And pretty soon after November 3rd, we're going to be about uh, abolishing slavery and involuntary servitude out of our constitution. In 2020, how can we say as a nation, as a world leader, that we still have in our constitutions the right to enslave a human being? How can we continue to lead morally in this capacity? We're not. We have to do some healing. And I believe that COVID-19, uh, I believe that in this time, love and healing is better than uh, of law and order, of crime and punishment. It is time for a different, a different, uh, a way of looking at things. Thank you, Tarek. Um, I'll pass it over to Kelly in a second. I really appreciated your comments and and the reminder that people in prison and behind cages need to be part of the this particular moment to defund to the police we need to bring in the organizing um, and organize across inside and outside um, bring in organizing strategies inside and outside of of cages um, and kelly i'll i'll pass it over to you to see if you have any thoughts about uh, how the the call to defund police can be connected to uh, the call to abolish or the movement to abolish imprisonment? Yes, definitely. Um, thank you. Um, so um, I also am in the same building with All or None, but my day job um, connected with Survived and Punished is California Coalition for Women Prisoners. And um, so I also invest countless hours, seven days a week, writing people inside. And so I think, you know, Obviously, we'd like to see the, it just disappear, you know, the whole prison system, as well as the way people police. But I think if we 
at this moment, if we started next month, every month that, um, you know, officers were forced to be in a system where they had to learn about the different things, the mental health, you know, looking at, um, you know, somebody dealing with a, a survivor situation, you know, all those different factors, if they were forced to be in a room and understood who they were dealing with now, all they know is I am the ultimate power and I make all decisions. Officers aren't forced to sit in in a um, room and learn about anything more than did you have gun training this month or this quarter. They're not having to learn basic things that help make sure that we're safe. Um, when they're going out to a call, all they're thinking is adrenaline and I'm I'm in power and I make the say so, not you know, what, what am I walking into? Yes, there are situations that, that turn violent very quickly, but most turn violent because of the way they approach the situation. And that, that's just the honest truth. And, I, you know, I'd like to say we immediately cut down their union and, and make them, you know, have, you know, opportunities to, to lose positions. But the, the reality is at this moment, I think it, it, you know, if we don't get in there and have conversations, whether it is a team of psychologists or more importantly, a team of individuals that were incarcerated that dealt with them. You know, giving them the real situations that they're putting everyone through. When you've got a juvenile who doesn't have a loved one in the room and they're having a conversation, that's not okay. You know, a, a teacher is supposed to call a teacher parent conference. Why is the police able to do whatever they want for, you know, 20 plus hours to, a, you know, to a child who can't even function after an hour of a conversation? I mean, even schools know that they need a break in between, and these people are are in a in a situation that they're harassed to the point that they agree to things they didn't do, and and it's not one situation. It's not just one state. This is a constant narrative that keeps playing out, and and they're still saying, "But we're doing nothing wrong. We're just doing our jobs." But the reality is. Deep down, if they were forced to be in a situation where they had to have a conversation, where they had to get training, I think the narrative would be a little bit different as we continue to cut down and, you know, defund and, you know, create movements where, you know, kids in school didn't learn, you know, hide from the police or don't call the police. They shouldn't have to learn that. They should have to learn this is how you can navigate with them. Right at this moment, they have to learn how do you navigate with the police. That's only happening in the homes, homes that have the ability to have that conversation, but not everybody. So you have two individuals walking down the street and they know their situation is going to be totally different depending on their race. And that's never acceptable. They're both doing the same things at the same time. Just one's in one city and one's in the other, or one's in one block and one's in another. That's not okay. But that's what we have right now because we're not taking the steps to realize they're people and not the ultimate authority. You know, some people, you know, and I'm not saying our president should ever be respected, but 
they respect a police officer walking up to them more than they respect our president because that's what kind of country we've created that uh, whatever that police officer thinks, feels, and is doing that day is more important than anything else in your world because the fear that the police have created, not because they're the ultimate being that deserves that honor and respect. Could there be great officers that are doing the right thing? It's possible. I haven't seen it. Um, it, it. In every situation, it's possible. But that somebody has the right ethics and the right responsibility, but there's so many that aren't doing the right thing that it makes it hard to respect any. And that makes it the most difficult. So I think um, when we look at what it would like to, to, to defund, it's the same way in prison. We want the prisons to end, but it has to go and it has to start with allowing the people who are doing the work to be honored and respect, be respected because they're not. You know, that short termer is respected, is given the highest attention, whether it's a vocation, whether it's a right to a certain prison, whether it's medical care, they're respected in all of those areas. And then it's the lifer. The lifer is going to get a little bit more. They're not going to get much. And then the LWAP is getting almost anything. So the person serving life without the possibility of parole is going to be told constantly they have nothing coming because they are walking death row. They're just in general population. And now that death row is in population with us, they're just they're the same. It's just death row has an opportunity to have um, like legal representation. So it just makes it really difficult when you're in a situation that you're told you're less than, you have less, whether it's what groups you can attend because they're going to put a short term on the list first. You know, looking at what those individuals are doing, those LWAPs and those lifers are the individuals that are running the group. CDCR didn't create anything. Individuals incarcerated created the groups to help get their community out because they know they're going to be my loved one's neighbor. So I want them healthy and whole. And so they're the ones teaching the groups. They're the ones creating the curriculum. CDCR is just giving funding to a staff to get overtime to, to sit in the group um, just to make sure that there's somebody at the door. They're not teaching us anything. In fact, they're denying us access to individuals who are willing to come in and teach us, you know, who are willing to give up their time for free. Why? Because then that staff sponsor isn't needed and they don't get time and a half. So how acceptable is that, you know, that we're told, yeah, you can teach the group, not saying that we want credit or recognition or even funding for it, but we can't even get a notebook to, um, you know, to take to the group to write notes in, you know, in your, your curriculums or, you know, about what you learned that day. You know, you can't get basic needs, but yet they have all this money for rehabilitation funding, but somebody wants to, you know, give out some packets of information that people can process and they can't even get that. And so it needs to start with, you know, acknowledging the people who are doing the work and giving them the credit that they have coming because there's a lot that aren't getting that. You know, we're getting free college from the state 
and the institutions are shutting down the college classes. You know, we're not, you know, we're not saying that we deserve more than somebody else. Don't get me wrong. Staff doesn't want the college to happen because staff thinks that since they have to pay for their own kid to have um, college, we should have to pay as well. But the reality is you should want someone leaving the institution to be at their best. And so once again, that education inside needs to happen like it happens outside. You know, if we could ever, you know, get that to actually happen to begin with. That education about what somebody's going through, just like when somebody's arrested, the biggest thing we do is we figure out how to create the biggest sentence instead of what created the situation to get someone there. At the end of your time, you have to go through those psychological valuations and you have to figure out if you're fixed enough. Why not at the beginning of your time? Why was I in this situation to begin with? What was happening to me and what was I thinking at the time? And allow that to be the time someone receives if they're actually guilty of a crime. You know, as I try to remind people constantly, we have um, so many individuals that are incarcerated because one person thought one way. So you have five people on a, a murder case, and I'm not saying all victims are the most important part of that conversation, but we're not talking about the victims at this moment. We've got five people on the case. One person made a decision, one gun, one body, one bullet, and five people are doing life without, or five people are doing 25 to life. How am I accountable for the thought process of one individual? And, you know, I'm, I'm accountable for yes. my part in a situation, but that is what the police have created, a system of punishing any and all people. Thank you, Kelly. And I think you bring attention to the very direct ways in which we can be calling for the defunding of the police in order to fund the kinds of prison programs that we need on the inside, right? That we can defund police in order to fund the reentry that we need on the outside for people. When people are actually coming home, they can be greeted with the kinds of resources that allows them to be able to succeed and also continue to invest in the community resources that already exist and that have been there for, you know, in spite of the kind of organized violence that exists with police and with incarceration. So I, I really appreciate the this very direct connection between defunding police precisely to fund uh, prison programs and precisely to, to fund uh, reentry work. Um, and part of the reason why, you know, so the urgency behind this, this uh, session specifically on linking defunding police with Free Them All um, and, the, and the general call for abolition was because we actually find ourselves in a pretty dire situation, even though we do win and we, and we will win, and I think that we will. Um, over the last six months, we've seen that um, in the face of COVID-19, um, people are not meeting our demands to free them all, right? In California and in New York, Governor Newsom and Governor Cuomo um, haven't actually shrunk the prison population despite all of our protesting and all of our demands, right? And the only uh, decrease that we we do see, it's about three to six percent, depending on what we're looking at. Um, and it's primarily because people are not being funneled from the jail system into the prison system, right? So that, but the, otherwise the numbers are more or less staying the same. So we're not seeing the gains that we want to see and that we should be seeing. Um, and this is precisely, you know, the, the, the impetus behind putting together this conversation. 
Um, so we're running at a, sure, go for it, um, Kelly. So really important to add, a lot of people believe that, you know, we hear this 1,800 people were released in California. These were people who would be released within the year anyway. And so that's really important to point out. And of course I have you know, sirens going off around me. Sorry about that. Um, and I live in a good neighborhood. Um, uh, unfortunately. Um, so uh, when we look at who's being um, let out of the institutions, they would be released within the year anyway. But society is led to believe that they just created this mass amount of people who were getting out of incarceration, though that many didn't get out. Um, it, these people had the year to, to leave or they were people who then didn't actually leave incarceration. They just went into their lower risk prison environment called CCTRP for the women. And, you know, it's something different for the men. But basically you live there and you're still confined, but you're allowed to learn how to go to work and that kind of thing. Um, so it's really important to know that they never actually let out people because of COVID. Yeah, thank you, Kelly, for that reminder. Um, and it's a reminder to all of us, and, and even those of us who've been calling to defund the police uh, and not maybe thinking so much about uh, abolition, the abolition of imprisonment. Um, we have another 30 minutes, uh, 40 minutes together. I have a few more questions. I want to know more about your thoughts or you're organizing around uh, conditions of confinement under the face of COVID-19. Um, I also have questions about the legacies of the prison abolition movement and, and how um, maybe one of the legacies of the prison abolition, abolition movement is the Abolish ICE movement and how you see these movements working together. Um, but I wanted, before we go back into questions, I wanted to remind the audience that you're more than welcome to uh, include your questions in um, the various chats. I'm not, I'm assuming you're looking at this through YouTube. Um, you can include your questions on YouTube. We have someone who's taking in those questions. Um, we've had a couple so far. Um, and in the last uh, part of this conversation, we'll go ahead and grab from those questions um, and, and then wrap up um, by 6.30. So uh, going back to the question around uh, conditions. Over the last week, week and a half, we've seen a lot of conversation uh, on the forced sterilizations that happened in the Irwin County Detention Center. It's brought up uh, sort of the legacies of forced sterilizations against uh, women of color, black women, um, Latina women in this country. Um, but in some ways, it's also the tip of the iceberg of uh, conditions and medical neglect inside uh, caging institutions. Um, and I'm wondering if, you know, and we don't have to go in any particular order, but what, what do you think or what is your organizing work uh, doing around the hor horrific and deadly conditions of confinement? Um, and, you know, what have you found that works? What doesn't what doesn't work? Um, and how is this connected or part of uh, PIC abolition? Uh, I can start us off. Um, yeah, I think the, 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 the piece about detention is really key and it cannot be lost in this conversation um, because um, ICE are the police. Uh, and similar to what Tarek was offering before, there was a time before ICE even existed, right? 
And I think we also like have to like be grounded and keep that in mind that ICE is actually a fairly new phenomenon. Um, and it's just another way that the state has been able to weaponize violence against our communities, um, especially knowing that um, when the conversations around like DACA, TPS uh, and undocumented folks in general, understanding that there's a large portion of, of, of those stories which are not being heard. Um, uh, because again, they're, they're not uh, clickable. They're not, they're not as, as attractive as some of these other conversations. And so when the news did hit about the mass hysterectomies, I thought it was, um, really key moment for people to like really understand that we have to keep uh, detention centers and the conversation about defunding ICE uh, in this like conversation as well, because uh, some of the organizing work that's been going on in DC, uh, there's a coalition of groups uh, working under the name of ICE out of DC, um, which has been fighting uh, to this earlier point that we're making around sanctuary, understanding that like uh, a sanctuary city um, uh, there's a lot of nuance around it, but that it, it's a city that doesn't include police. It's a, it's not as it's a city that doesn't include ice and understanding that, uh, the, the kidnapping, the disappearing, um, the, the disrupting of families, um, isn't something that just recently happening. Uh, it's been happening under, uh, uh this current administration. It happened under Obama, um, and understanding that there's like a system wide, um, piece of how the, how, um, detention centers have been weaponized, um, in criminalizing undocumented folks. And so the same way that we're seeing police, um, over policing in black and brown and indigenous communities. We're also seeing that same criminalization being fed into uh, these systems where people are being disappeared and kidnapped um, into these ice, uh, uh, from ice uh, into these detention facilities. So I think that's the piece we really have to, to keep in mind uh, on top of the fact that when we're talking about um, defunding police, um, the piece of that is also thinking about the detention centers, especially the youth detention centers, where people are being separated from their children. Um, and in some cases, and, and as reports, uh, even I believe it was last year, where we we're talking about the kids out of cages movement, is the fact that some of those kids will, may never in their lifetime ever get a chance to see their family again, or ever get to know who their parents were because of the violence that uh, ICE is enacting. So understanding that levels of, of the ways in which it's intertwined and has to be kept into this conversation. This country in its conception, even in its colonial uh, manifestation, have always been violent towards women. Women, whether they're African, Latino, uh, First Nation, they were seen just above property. They were willing to, if they were willing to marry you, in those in those beginning ages, uh, they were at the behest of their husbands. As we move forward, this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, African women have always uh, been used as test tubes on reproduction because they want to find out one and Latinos as well. One, how do we slow down their population? And two, how do we control uh, their ability to fight off? Um, the agents that we put out there, we as this country, to destroy them. Uh, the First Nations have been destroyed uh, through pandemics, uh, whether man-made or not. Uh, so the history of this country and the abuse to women is documented uh, throughout 
throughout our history. And it is time that our queens are respected as they should be. They are the ones who give us birth. They are the ones who are our first teacher. They are the ones who nourish us. They are the ones who do time with us and wait for us to get out in order to have us come out and lead with them, not uh, uh, above them or uh, uh, before them. And we have disrespected them. There's no... We wouldn't even be having this conversation or a woman's movement conversation throughout the history of this country if the patriarchal system that was constructed had any type of reverence for women as they should. And as a Muslim in Islam, we are taught uh, 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 immediately that we should reverence the wounds that bore us, that our mothers are three times more honorable and respected than our fathers. Yet in our societies, we will rather praise Beyonce for shaking her ass than we would uh, 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 give credence to a woman who uh, uh, is, is is promoting the right conduct in our in our in our in our society as our teachers are are. are our, our doctors and nurses and so on and so forth. We need a healing of mind, body, and soul in this country. We need to go through an evolution of 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 of, of moral uh, proportions in order to get us back on track. And this will solve many of the problems that we are talking about today when we're talking about the prison industrial complex. And we had a question on here on how to be able to get involved uh, in dismantling. Uh, the prison industrial complex when you're so brand new. I forget the person's name, but he, he asked, what would I say uh, to to help him uh, who is newly committed to the dismantling of uh, PIC and what to bring more folks to the movement? Have conversations. See, I, I, I'm not allowed in certain rooms. I'm not allowed, I'm not privy to the company of certain elite people or certain crowds, right? Have conversations, study, educate yourself, do research. Here at All of Us and None, we have manuals and, and pamphlets and educational material uh, to be able to educate the population on what's really going on. Stop just sitting in your bubble, uh, being fed Hollywood fake news, the real fake news uh, on what reality is. Learn and study for yourself and have conversations with people who have a different perspective. There are many people who never had to understand through ancestral uh, uh, storytelling what it was like to have your ancestors hanging from a loose. See, many people don't know what it means to be at the end of a, of a whip. Many people in this country don't know what it means to get out of this town before sundown. And so your conversations and your perspective of life is going to be different than mine or different than that person's. And being able to be in that same room, you'll be able to have those conversations and come to a realization that we are all human beings and that we all deserve the same human rights and treatment. And the PIC is predominantly uh, targeting uh, for a political uh, uh, for a political purpose to house and to restrain and to control uh, bodies that don't, that don't fit the white supremacist definition. Okay, you guys can hear me. Um, so I, I want to kind of bring it back just a tiny bit to um, refocus a little bit to understand that way before, this horrible situation is happening in the detention centers right now. It was happening at Valley State Prison for Women um, 
when I was there during my time, which is why I had the medical concerns I did when I got out of prison, because I would not go back to another doctor because we were going through this. We have women who have no idea that they were sterilized and the state is still not willing to tell them. They know who they are and are not willing to tell them to this day. We have a bill that keeps getting and not getting started, um, especially due to COVID. And we're going to readdress it again next year because reparations really is nothing, but the acknowledgement to these individuals, every single person that went through that at Valley State should have been informed way before now um, when they first learned that there was a problem, they did not care. They allowed this man to get on TV and say we wanted procedures because it was our only contact with men. And then continued to have him service the institution until it shut down. The last day for women was December 20th of uh, 2012. And I saw him that day because I had no choice because they realized that I had a problem. and. I was petrified. Mind you, this day was supposed to be the happiest day of my life. I found out I had won my appeal and the courts were going to finally give me relief. But I was absolutely shaking because I was forced to I was called over and forced to, to even just talk to this man. And he didn't even do what he was supposed to do, because luckily they had locked up the equipment for women, and, you know, because they were shutting down our prison. But I was scared. And that's how so many women felt every single time they even had to have a conversation. You couldn't get basic medical care. So, yes, this is an absolute travesty. And after that, it never, you know, you'd think that the system would learn something and they wouldn't do it to a new generation. But unfortunately, we have it again. And every single person that is still unaware is still being traumatized because we have people who are like, why can't I get pregnant? And I'm trying. I'm home. I'm finally home after, you know, two decades of incarceration and what's happening with my body. And I'm paying thousands of dollars to try to figure it out that I don't have because I'm newly released. And the, the system knows right this minute that they could contact every single one of those individuals and they're just not. And they're making no excuses. Just we just haven't. That's not acceptable in a system today with all of the education and all of the options that we have out there. You would think that they'd want to do more, but they're just not. And so I just want to make sure I bring that into the space because all of those people are suffering and, uh, and, and some of them don't even realize how bad. But all of us that had to help those individuals, you know, up until the day I left, you know, they had hurt me so bad that I couldn't walk on my own without assistance because in a procedure, they punctured my artery and didn't even tell me um, because they didn't want any more responsibility. And luckily I got out and was able to get medical care. Um, but unfortunately, you know, that I'm just a tiny example um, of all the people who just didn't seek assistance because we were so scared we were gonna have to deal with this man that should have been removed um, a million times over. But that is the power of the system that we need to dismantle. Every time you have a situation that egregious, 
there should have been steps taken after. It's bad enough they weren't taken before to stop it, but there still is no steps being taken to make this right, you know, and, and it's a constant battle just to, to get a little bit of leeway, you know, and it's just not. Thank fair. you, Kelly, for, thank you, Kelly, for sharing um, and opening up your story and, and, and sharing this with us. I'm sorry that, uh, you know, I think that, sorry that this has happened and it continues to happen. And, and it's also making me think about the kinds of the, the solidarity that needs to happen um, between people, between the abolish ICE movement and, um, and the movement to abolish caging prisons and, and jails. Um, but before we move forward, I, I wanted to pause in, in this moment. And if there are, cause you mentioned that the, wanted to pause there for a second for, to go back to, a comment that you made, it sounds like there's a campaign and that people can get involved. Can you share a little bit more for folks who are maybe listening in and would like to get involved in this particular campaign that Survived and Punished is working on? Is there a campaign and, and how do people plug in? So there's a couple different things. You can um, log on to the website at um, Survived and Punished or California Coalition for Women Prisoners and you know attend a meeting. It will help you in that process. If you're looking for something really basic, like I just want to write someone inside, you know, we have the Writing Warriors program since we don't have visits or something big like you you can, you know, have the capacity to help with the commutation, help, you know, educate somebody who is just looking for, you know, support to understand their medical concerns. Because once again, we have several women who are, you know, dealing with some um, serious medical concerns with cancers, things like that, because they didn't get treatment after um, situations like this. And we can engage with all of those individuals with both um, programs, both um, organizations work directly on a daily basis with people inside. So either one can come attend a meeting. You know, um, I, I can put, well, I don't know how, but somebody could put my email in. Um, I don't know if Skype has a chat. I'm very confused about this new system. Um, but if somebody could put my email out there, you know, talk directly, come meet once um, first Monday of the month is our um, meeting for CCWP. Survived and punished changes a little bit because there's so many of us trying to navigate. Um, but, you know, either one, I can get you access. And if you want to get involved in the Drop LWAP campaign or just write somebody, we meet on the first Monday, uh, no, the third Monday of every month. So there's options, um, you know, to get involved if you choose to. The fact is we need more voices who are just going to listen to, you know, what is it like to be incarcerated. If you have an organization or you work with an organization, a school, uh, anywhere that wants to learn what it's like to be incarcerated, invite someone who is formerly incarcerated to speak at, mm -hmm. at your events because it's going to give them opportunity. Now, I'm not going to lie. Those individuals that, that you ask to speak should be paid for those engagements because they're trying to learn how to survive in a new environment. That's really rough for me to say because I will not ask. 
my passion is is this opportunity. I dreamed of the idea that one day I could get out and educate someone else on the things I didn't know. My mother was incarcerated my whole life, and I was her only champion in a you know family of ten. I was the only one that was willing to continue to write and visit and do all these things. And I wish there was more people. And I saw women every day beg for an opportunity to have somebody write them or have a visit because it's just not possible um, for most, especially where they're isolated at. So engage. There's so many ways you can get involved. You just have to take the step. And now with COVID, there's not a lot of excuses why you can't send a JPay or a, a snail mail letter because everyone has, well, that's not true. Us activists don't have a lot of time, but most people, because it's <laughs> now it's a hundred times worse, but most people have more time because you can't go to the you know local restaurant for two hours, take five minutes and write somebody because I promise you it matters and it makes somebody feel included. Survived and punished when they fought to get me out. I had hundreds of letters every month, hundreds. I mean, serious people committed to taking care of of my emotional state and it meant everything they attended court hearings they did all sorts of things to to provide service because i couldn't attend and it mattered and you could matter too in this movement if you chose to yes jpay is corrupt um and they know it but don't underestimate the power of putting money on someone's book and letter writing um but yeah absolutely Thank you. I appreciate this, the reminders to uh, to continue to put and focus our attention on inside outside organizing strategies and all of our organizing and our organizing to defund the police. I think that this is it's crucial. And and I, you know, I also think that through your work, we've seen examples how um, fights around conditions and the, and the deadliness of, of imprisonment needs to also be part of the conversation, not necessarily an and or or either or situation. Um, it needs to be, uh, you know, we, we're going to a, a fight for the abolition of cages while we're fighting to make sure that uh, folks on the inside are not killed at, at the rate in which they are. Um, and and I, I want to talk about solidarity and I still also even want to talk a little, I want to go, this reminded me that I also want to talk about sort of the code of silence and the kind of violence that we see in in cages, so right, the, the, the violence that we see in cages from uh, prison and jail guards and the violence that we see from uh, from police. And in some ways, the, the violence that we see from police, it's, you know, now with cameras, it's in our... Um, we, we capture it and it's online and it goes viral. Um, but the kind of violence that happens inside of cages um, is, is a way or absent of a witness, right? So I wanna go back to that in a second. I also want to talk about, I wanna go back to solidarity, um, to, to think about solidarity. Um, but I do also wanna remind, we have 15 minutes, so we're almost wrapping up. Um, we probably will have uh, time for one question. Um, from the audience, um, and maybe we don't have time to go around uh, everybody, and you can answer one of the two questions. You know, so let's talk about the the violence that that we see um, inside cages, um, the lack of witnesses uh, to that violence. Right, it already does away. Um, cages already do a really good job at separating us and keeping us each 
keeping each other away from each other. Um, so we have to work extra hard to to put eyes inside of of cages. Um, and Kelly, since you're raising your hand, we'll go there, and then maybe we can. The second to last question will be around solidarity and and something that the audience might might have. Okay, go for really it, Kelly. Quick. Me Too Behind Bars is uh, yet another movement where we are supporting for California Coalition of Women Prisoners because so many of our trans individuals inside are harassed on a daily basis. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what, how they conduct themselves. They are harassed because of the dynamics with staff, even people who agree with lifestyle choices create an, they create an environment that they can't be um, kind and courteous. We're not asking for more than just mutual respect. If I'm not messing with you, quit messing with me. It just doesn't happen. Um, and so Me Too Behind Mars is yet another mechanism that we are working on with a lawsuit of that harassment that happened. Um, with staff, staff is never going to go against their own. When they do, yes, they are absolutely um, ostracized from everyone else and put into situations. So most of them aren't, don't have the guts to do it. And I'm trying to be polite about that. Um, they don't have the guts to do it. And they're not going to step above and beyond for any individual that has a number, unfortunately, uh, even when they know it's wrong. You know, we had a female officer involved in the Me Too um, process that started with them cutting off uh, an individual's clothes. And it was four male officers and one female. And that female normally under other circumstances is a halfway decent person in inside the incarcerated system. And she just didn't speak up and it was disgusting. Um, and that is normal to happen, unfortunately. And that solidarity has to come from us working because it's not going to come from anywhere else. Our voices are only heard if we put our voices out there. Those of us that have been released and are taking the steps, whether we're engaging in a college class or something like this, we're giving just a little bit on the outside. Um, and we work every day with people inside who are reporting whatever that newest abuse is, um, especially with COVID. You know, people don't want to report not because they don't want help because they're sick. The truth is they're not going to get helped even if they're sick. They're going to be isolated and not even get medical attention. You're not even getting COVID uh, symptoms are extreme and they're not even getting a cough drop for, for a cold while in isolation and they test positive. This is a not acceptable process. You're completely isolated from everyone else. And so this is uh, across the board Isolation is just a way to keep them um, more in bondage. People who are asking for mental health help because they have been exposed to COVID, but they know their family are out on the streets and they were aware before their isolation that their family was sick and they're stressed and they're asking for mental health help and they're getting a crossword puzzle and a word search instead of a mental health counseling session. And this is normal inside right now. Sorry. And if I could just piggyback off of like the piece about isolation, I think we also like have to tease apart and really understand that like the the carceral these carceral systems we're fighting also still 
uh, deal within a very binary system and understanding that our trans kin are like often uh, not even like when we're, they're going through these systems, aren't even getting uh, the medical attention they need, aren't getting the considerations they need. They're getting thrown into isolation and solitary, right? And so understanding that there's that com- component too of like on the inside, but even on the outside that we're seeing that the, the same patriarchal violence that we had mentioned earlier we're seeing uh, happen against black uh, uh, women in films is also happening to our trans folks, right? The fact that even in D.C., um, there's been several documented instances, and it's been continuing over years, where police officers have, like, tracked down um, and harassed um, and sexually assaulted uh, black trans women in D.C. Um, and are able to get away with it because of the, the system that we're in. Um, and there's no there's no actual justice for the system uh, and only further bu- bru- uh, brutalizes our, our trans kin. And so understanding that even as we're th- thinking about these systems and how they uh, they work. Uh, patriarchal violence in the larger system doesn't care. Like it, it, it's, it's really at the core, it's violence and understanding that that violence extends and has so many different like tentacles in so many different ways that whether we're talking about the fight on the inside um, and the fights that are being led by currently incarcerated folks or the fight outside with formerly incarcerated folks and folks um, at, at the, 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 the end point of the gun of this system, uh, we have to understand that, that that patriarchal violence is this extremely deadly component um, that we really also have to continue to tease out and understand um, the, the fight that not just our people are in, but also specifically uh, trans folks as well. Thank you so much, uh, Jonathan, for saying that and, and um, adding to that. You actually took the words out of my mouth because this is exactly what I was thinking in terms of solidarity. I think that so many people are affected by incarceration and policing that everybody is really um, can be included in the fight against uh, or or for abolition. And I and I've been thinking about the like our conversation has made me think about the ways in which um, the kinds of jail expansions that happen over the last twenty years, right? So the the counties that. Uh, built the largest jails over the last 20 years are the counties that are now being contracted by ICE um, to imprison people under ICE custody, right? So immigrant folks are included in this fight, um, as well as, you know, the various kinds of reforms that we see, the reformed jails that we saw over the last 10 years, or, or maybe even a little bit less, right? The gendered, uh, transgender um, cages that are specifically geared supposedly for women and their children, for transgender women um, to supposedly cater towards um, these populations are also included um, in this fight for abolition, right? And so I think that regardless whether, you know, I, I think that all kinds of women, whether you can bear children or you can't bear children, um, immigrants, black folks, um, uh, indigenous folks, um, it is included in this fight for for abolition, um, and the call to defund police needs to be connected to the call to to free them all. Um, we have uh, a few more minutes. We've received really amazing uh, uh, questions, some of which are actually, and all actually, are are probably best answered for our next um, sessions. We have two more sessions to go as part of this political series or these series of political conversations. Um, our next uh conversation is scheduled for the next two Thursdays. So Thursday, and I apologize, I need to look. Um, 
at my notes. So Thursday, October 22nd and Thursday, October 29th, we'll be here at the same time and same place on Haymarket Books YouTube channel live. Um, and then you'll also be able to uh, come back and, and uh, look at this recording. Um, when we post this recording, we'll try to remember to also post links uh, to um, the information that Kelly and Tar Tarek mentioned in terms of how to get involved in these various uh, campaigns and groups. And Jonathan, if you want to also link some, some things, then we'll go ahead and do that as well. Um, uh, on the conversation, uh, October 22nd, locating abolition within the fight against imperialism, we'll be discussing U.S. policing and imprisonment domestically. We'll be discussing this at the border and we'll be discussing this internationally. Right. So somebody had a question around international solidarity um, and the project of imperialism. We had a really amazing conversation last week or a couple weeks ago now um, where we talked about uh we brought together the concept of racial capitalism, imperialism, and settler colonialism. In this upcoming conversation, we'll go deeper into um, those systems and looking at it very concretely domestically at the border and internationally. Um, on the conversation uh, or for the conversation on October 29th, we'll be, which is titled uh, Building Abolition Now, uh, we'll share examples of community safety projects without policing, and this will be the final conversation to wrap up our, our political um, education series, and we hope that you can join us for that. Um, before we end up closing, and Tarek, if you feel inspired, because we said that we would potentially do this, I want to ask you whether you'd, you feel moved to close us off with your art, with your performance, with your vision of the future um, and and, and help remind us how we can continue to connect uh, the fight for uh, defunding police and uh, to the fight to free them all. Yes, uh, I did write uh, something, I mean, right before the show began because I was feeling it. Um, and just the industries and the economic benefits of, of this is is really paying attention to what you what you pay for, what you buy. Research. We we may need to create a, a platform to where we really look into what companies are doing what and how they are benefited. But this country has always benefited from slave labor and prison is just another way. So pay people inside a prison of uh, uh, a minimum wage, pay our firefighter inmates uh, that fight fires uh, uh, for California, pay them like you pay uh, at least minimum wage and allow them to get a license to be a firefighter once they've done their time and, and, and are on parole. So I just wanted to add that in, but this piece is called What If? What if police were never called? Their badges? never saw, their guns never drawn like Michelangelo painting history with whitewashed imagery of black bodies in silhouette on white canvases needing bullet holes in vital spots. Now stop, what if targets for practice were white spots? What if prisons weren't plantations growing black roses and barbed wire where overseers weren't in charge of correcting liars? Using torture and solitude with Plato's cage, shadows reflecting ghetto creations through thoughts, words, and how Hollywood behaves. That keeps caves full of cave dwellers, the unseen 
are the cave dwellers are the que- are the cave drawings left by evolved cave miners involved in turning carceral cages into caring curing centers for courageous caretakers what if slave catchers caught and released the best back into empty communities agents of records recorded less return receipts and more re-entries of returning citizens of three decades unseen to pothole streets, men and women who have gone in healing souls that were broken, capable of refilling those holes with hope and vision. This is the age of the slave and what if we're given seats to replace politicians paid to repeat the same mistakes of thinking they know the latest best bandage to cover the bleeding. What if it's not a phrase we have been taught to say? It's what we've been taught to say. What if I say this is what we will do, love, heal, and live in peace. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tarek, for for sharing that. Thank you, Kelly and Jonathan, for joining the, uh, this conversation as well. Thank you, Ms. LaShawn Lowe and Ms. LaVorne for your amazing uh, ASL interpretation. And most importantly, thank you for joining this conversation today. Um, we hope that you've enjoyed it, that you've been, uh, and we really appreciate that you're joining, especially in the age of Sumathons and YouTubes <laughs> uh, galore all over. Um, all of our experiences are now virtual, um, and we hope that you have found this useful um, and enriching for the organizing work that you're doing out on the ground. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful rest of the evening. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, Subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.